guys. We are back in Hebrews this morning, and I may remember some things, but I do not remember all of our scripture or all of our notes at the same time. They always tell us in seminary that we have to get better at memorizing scripture, and I'm assuming it's for moments just like that. But when you're in a small enough room, this is just faster. So, good morning. We are back in Hebrews. We are actually, guys, we are in the halfway point of Hebrews this morning. And this, I'll go ahead and give you the disclaimer. I'm glad that this was not my first passage back getting to teach with you guys coming back from our break. Because this one is not easy to understand. So, good thing we started last week where we did when we were in chapter 4 at chapter 5 when Jesus, uh, we were seeing how he was greater than Aaron's priests. The picture of priesthood that we have in Jesus is one of this kind of dealing gently with us in our weakness so that we're able to be brought closer to God. And God says, hey, I need you to trust my priest that this is who he is and this is what he does. And then I want you to go do this for other people, right? So a a picture of trust and interceding and dealing gently. And now we're at a, a portion of Hebrews where we're in the dead middle of the book. And the author is going to kind of go back to the beginning and say, okay, we've gone through five chapters of all this really deep theology about who Jesus is and what he's done and why this life with him is better. But in circling back around, he, he kind of lands on a subject that, I don't know, we, it took me a long time to understand what the author was going after this week. And even as I was reading through it this morning, I'm going, man, I, the Lord, uh, I'm grateful that the audience that the author was writing to would have understood this. Because if you've ever, if you've ever had the question, uh, can I lose my salvation? then you've probably heard this text before. In fact, some of you guys in your Bibles, it'll probably have a heading right before chapter 5, verse 11, that says, warning against apostasy, uh, which is just the fancy church word for losing faith or something. And the the more, I've listened to a bunch of sermons that teach on this, and they, they tend to kind of focus on this apostasy piece of like, what happens when we lose our salvation, can we lose our salvation? And they'll, they'll approach it from this angle. And this is where, honestly, why I'm grateful that we walk through larger chunks of Scripture together and whole books of Scripture together. Because it makes me have to wrestle with, but think about the author and the audience, right? Is, is this a discussion that would have felt natural to them? Or is there something else that's going on? You know, if we've been seeing these chapters pointing in this direction, does, you know, a certain interpretation fit with this? And kind of where I landed this week, guys, is if you think about the audience that the author of Hebrews was writing to. This was a group of people who used to be Jews, who are now Christians, and they're facing intense persecution for their beliefs. So they're really struggling with, is following Jesus worth it. So they really could have asked the question, well, you know, you told me to believe in Jesus. I I believed in him. Everything got way harder. Is it still worth it for me to believe in Jesus? And I think sometimes in our, our English minds, we read this section and we go, ah, 
Here's a good theological discussion about can I lose salvation? Can I say, well, I, I thought it was worth it to follow Jesus, but now I've decided it's not, and read it through that light? I think we certainly could. I think we could read it that way. But I'm going to go in a slightly different direction this morning because the more I went back and reread all the preceding chapters, I realized the author does have a main point that he's trying to get across. And in all these previous chapters, he hasn't really focused so much on the negative side to say, well, what would life without Jesus look like? The author has consistently, as we've been seeing, been pointing to, no, guys, this is why you need Jesus. This is why Jesus is so much bigger. So the emphasis for the author of Hebrews up until this point hasn't been on the struggle so much as the hope. That we have. So if you'll allow me this morning, the way we're going to approach this passage, and I'm not, I'm not saying that the apostasy stuff isn't in here, but I'm going to try to approach it from that same standpoint to say, okay, if the author has been more focused on the hope that we have rather than the struggle that we're trying to avoid, that's, that's how we're going to handle the text today. So we're going to begin in chapter 5, verse 11, and read through the end of chapter 6. And we're going to see this, this hope that the author is trying to give us, which the other reason that it helps us to focus more on the hope than the struggle is that the hope is the eternal peace, right? The hope is the message that will speak to any audience at any time that's reading this, going, man, what were they, what were they walking through? So here's, here's what God is after as he's trying to speak to the hope, the encouragement of this people struggling with is following Jesus and claiming Jesus is who he says he is, is it worth it? We're going to see that God desires to mature our faith through trust over knowledge to bring us into his covenant life. So kind of this, well, if I'm struggling, if it's worth it or not, God says, oh yes, it is it is worth it. In fact, not only is it worth it to follow Jesus, I want you to grow in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your persecution. I want you to grow in following Jesus. I'm going to grow you by really pulling on that trust string through trust over knowledge. Why? Because I want to bring you into covenant life. So our, our Jesus is greater than fill in the blank this morning. That would be Jesus is greater than knowledge. So starting in verse 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then who have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. 
For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless. And it's near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show that same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God, we are grateful that you answered your church when they were struggling. God, we are grateful that we have records like Hebrews, Lord, that show how you, you walk with us in just when we feel persecuted or when we feel attacked. Um, just when we just don't feel encouraged, Lord, when we are struggling and when we are feeling overwhelmed, Father, that you, you give us a window into those who are following you thousand years ago, 2,000 years ago, to say, no, this is how I was walking with them. This is how I was, what I was reminding them of and encouraging them of. Lord, we know that our world today looks very different in many ways from the ancient world, but Father, you are still here, and our struggle with sin is still very present. Father, may you show us the encouragement that you are bringing to your people, and let us see how that changes our hearts and the way that we approach ourselves and our world this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so again, we're now at the midpoint of Hebrews. And if, if you've just been, I mean, this is kind of nice for us that we get to come at this every week and sit and take it almost in small doses. It might not feel like small doses to you guys because you're on the receiving end of the sermon, but we, we haven't been as if this was the early church reading this as a letter start to finish. Because at this point that you and I had been sitting listening to someone reading this, we would have our brains would just hurt from all this theology and all this stuff about Jesus that we are getting. So it's been good for us to take this in small bites. But now the author is going to kind of circle back around and say, okay, let me remind you again of why I'm talking about this. Let, let me show you why all of this is important. And I love that the language the author chooses to use. Why is this a big deal? Why does it matter that Jesus is greater than all these things we've looked at? It says, because God desires to mature 
your faith. Right? That, that God has not just called you to be saved out of sin and then just wait for something to happen. That, that God actually does desire for you to mature and to grow in your faith. If you look at verse 11, the author says, right, it says, look, we have a lot to tell you, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. The one commentator I was reading, they call this the lullaby effect. Because you'd think this was, this was an audience of mostly formerly Jews. So they've heard all the Old Testament stories about who the Messiah is. They, they know all these prophecies and all these promises about who Jesus was going to do. And he's saying it's almost gotten to the point where you, you feel like you've heard the same story enough that you just don't want to hear it anymore. And you want to move on. You want to say, I've heard that. That brought me here. Here is not good. Give me something new to get me out of this. And the author says, look, I want to give you something better. But you're kind of refusing to listen to the same things that you really need to hear. The author's challenging him says, look... You ought to be teachers. You ought to know this so well that you're living it out, that you're practicing it, that you're showing others what this looks like. But instead, you've just checked out because you've said, ah, I've heard that before. Give me something new. It says you should be able to make all the connections, verse 12, verse 13, but you're, you're not. You're still needing milk. And I love the author's attitude in this, right? Because it's very easy, especially as the one writing the letter, for the author to kind of come at this with a, you know, I'm looking down on you a little bit. Like, come on, guys. How do you not understand this? Or even, even with a little bit of pride, like, if only you knew what I knew, you would be able to, to take this. But in verse 14, he points out, but guys, look, this is why I want you to grow. This is why I want you to, to not be lulled to sleep by hearing the story that God has set before you. It says, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right? He's saying, look, God wants you to grow in this. We're not just telling you the same stories over and over again so that you eventually just get tired of it and want something else. He says, no, God wants you to grow. And he, he phrases it in this, this image of a child moving from milk to solid food. Charlie, she's too young to understand how lucky she was, but around the time that she was ready to start eating solid food was about a week or two before Thanksgiving. And so she got to experience pretty much everybody's culinary talents on display as like some of her first meals. And then she got to experience the wonderful world of leftovers after Thanksgiving and all that good stuff that you just get to keep eating over and over again. So we're, we see here, it's, it's very natural for us. We start with milk, but our stomachs were not made to stay with milk. The author says, look, I, I want you to understand, I'm not going through all this stuff about how Jesus is better than this, Jesus is better than this. I'm not doing this just because I think you, you haven't heard it. I know you hear it, so that you know God desires you to grow. Because the author is showing how we start with Christ, but then we keep growing for life in the Spirit. Kind of the same 
imagery, if you can remember back to Hebrews 3, about trusting the foundation, trusting the builder. Right? If God is doing the one building the house, we have to trust that he's building the house, but then he's actually going to you know, finish it. He's not just laying a foundation. He's desiring to build a full mansion on there. And kind of the, the modern-day language, if you would allow me to kind of put that on here, we would say something to the effect of salvation for you and I is the starting point, not necessarily just the end goal. And that hopefully makes sense in light of what we've been seeing in Hebrews, but sometimes we really struggle with that. Because if you're like me, I constantly have, especially when I encounter a situation I feel like I've seen before or a struggle that I just can't seem to shake, I'm like, God, we're right. Like, you saved me. Why am I still struggling with this? And it's almost as if I have a hard time moving past salvation. Like, God, I'm saved. So I shouldn't have to struggle with this anymore. Because, and that just reflects a small piece of my heart that says, God, that should have been it. Right? For me, being saved should have been it. But the author of Hebrews is saying, no, you have been saved in Christ. But that wasn't God's end goal. He desires you to grow, to mature. And it's the same language, guys, we saw all in Exodus and all in Malachi about being reconciled. That we want to, we are made right with God through Christ the moment we receive him to use our language and, and have that, that salvation moment. But then the rest of life becomes learning to let God work out his image in us. Saying like, okay, almost like when you're renovating a house, you bought the house, it's yours. Technically, it's the bank's, but it's yours on all the legal documents. It's your house. But then from that day onward, you are changing and you are restoring everything that is taking place inside of the house. Reconciliation has a direction. And for a group of people who are sitting going, but it feels like once we got saved, then all the hard stuff started to happen. The author saying, no, listen, do not let your external circumstances tell you that the salvation was the problem. Trust God and the direction his reconciliation work is going. He desires to mature you in your faith. And then the rest of the chapter, now that we move into chapter 6, starts to show how do we do this. Right? How does God actually mature us in faith? And he starts with pointing out he matures us through trust more than he does through knowledge. And now this is kind of getting into the, the meat of the, the really difficult uh, piece begin at the very beginning of chapter 6. So the author starts by addressing this kind of internal assumption you and I have. Well, I won't read that on you, but the internal assumption that I at least have is that new knowledge is vital for growth. If I haven't learned something for a while, then I'm probably not growing. And I need to learn something new to kind of unlock like what that next step of life with God looks like. But there's two word pictures that were given here that don't really fit that assumption. If you look at verse 1, the author says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. So words that you'd use to describe kind of taking the next step, right? You're not leaving in the sense of you're forgetting or saying we don't need that anymore. You're saying I'm going to trust it, right? Like I have swum in the kiddie pool 
and I know that this is good. I know that I'm safe here. Now I'm going to move on, move in deeper, right? So this, this exchange that's going on is actually one of trust. God's saying, look, this is who I am. This is what I've done for you in Christ. Or, do you trust me in this? We say, yes, we do trust you, God. God says, good, because now we're going to learn. Now we're going to grow. And we see, again, that language of, of building right after it in verse 1. Not laying, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works. And it goes on to describe what the foundation is. Uh, and it, just going right back to Hebrews 3, right? God says, look, I've already laid the foundation. I desire to build much more than a foundation in your life. But if you will not trust the foundation that I have built, we will never see the whole rest of the house. If we keep thinking the second an issue comes up, that there's a problem with the foundation, and we need to go look for a different one over here, God says, you'll never let me build on what I've already shown and proven to you is the greatest foundation that I could give you. And the reminders to this encourage in verses 4 through 6. He says, look, it's impossible once you have started to build on that foundation, once you've seen how good that foundation is, to then just go want to go to another foundation. Again, this, this is where in our English it, it looks very clear, right? It's impossible. The case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly glyph. Like, our English makes it sound so easy. The Greek words that are there, we're not going to go through all of them, but a lot of the Greek language here is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. I think the author was doing this on purpose. They were combining a lot of Greek prefixes and verbs to make like hybrid versions of new verbs. And I, I wish I had an example um, for you in English. Because now as I'm saying it, I can't think of one off the top of my head. But there, he's almost creating new words to describe what's going on. So just as an example, where it says it's impossible for those uh, who have tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness, verse 6, and then have fallen away. Like for us, we read that and go, oh, they've, they've left God, right? They've lost faith. But the verb there is parapipto. Para means like with or along, a preposition. Pipto is a verb to fall. So we get fall away, but it's using words that aren't used anywhere else in the New Testament. The second one, uh, also in verse 6, to restore them again. Restore. Anna among, kinizo, new. Two more words squished together. Crucify. Anna staruo. So Anna among, staruo, to crucify. So again, I believe the author, he's using, they're using these different words to show the audience, I'm not just trying to tell you that you can't fall away. I'm not just trying to point out to you what life without God looks like. It's just saying, if you trusted the foundation, if you really trusted it, you'd let God build on it. And it's, it's speaking from an encouragement angle to say, look, if we trusted the foundation of salvation in Christ, we wouldn't need to look for another one. Because that's you and I's tendency, is when we, we have a foundation in Christ, and God starts to build, and things get really hard, 
Those of you who have built homes or had project in your homes go, there's always something that comes up. The author of Hebrews is telling his audience, look, your question is to say, well, the foundation must be the issue, right? Because that, I, I was fine until I accepted that as my foundation. Then everything hard shows up. And the author is not trying to get into this discussion of, well, what would it look like if you switched foundations? He's saying, no, if you trusted that foundation, if you committed to it, if you entered into a covenant with it saying, I believe that that is good and sufficient for me to build my life on, he would say, don't look for another foundation. And he uses this language because that to me sounds like a call to your audience that you really have to trust in the midst of hardship. And immediately he uses scripture that echoes exactly what Jesus says when Jesus says the same thing in John 15. For those of you who uh, can think all the way back to the very first week I preached here, I spoke from John 15. It's one of my favorite places in all of scripture. And it's where Jesus calls us to abide in him. That because of who he is and because of what he's done, our call is to trust. And in that trusting, we're able to bear fruit. We see that exact same language right here in verse 7 and verse 8 of chapter 6. The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So here's how Jesus puts it in chapter 15. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in me, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Same picture. Same deal. Same call in Scripture to trust the foundation. And then again, the author, as he moves into chapter nine, verse 9, like he knows he is giving a message that many of you guys feel whenever the pastor says, trust God. And your response is, that's easy for you to say, right? You don't know exactly all the ends and the depths of what I'm going through. The, the author gets that this feeling is there because in verse 9, immediately he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Almost as if the author is saying, I'm not writing to you because I think you're about to leave the faith. I just want to encourage you to stay strong on it. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. God sees what you're doing. He knows the struggle that you're going through. He's not just calling you to trust and saying, deal with the consequences as a result. He says, I've seen the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So what's the author trying to encourage the audience? We desire each one of you, verse 11, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The author saying you will not find a better foundation out there. Don't let your suffering and your persecution in this moment tell you that you think you could go find a better foundation elsewhere. And then he concludes. He concludes in verses 13 
through 20 by quoting another passage that sometimes we have a hard time working through in Genesis 22. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And, and just to give you the nutshell version of it, if you want to come read my notes afterwards, you can. But my, my reading of Hebrews 6 comes a lot from understanding why the author quotes Genesis 22 right here. Just to set the scene, we're not going to read the entire chapter because that is a whole mouthful to cover. But in Genesis 22 is the story of when Abraham takes Isaac and goes up on the mountain because God has told him to sacrifice his son. So if you go back to chapter 21 in Genesis, God has finally brought Abraham and Sarah a son. He's finally made them at peace with their enemies. Abraham and Sarah have finally stepped out of a season of persecution and hardship, and they're like, oh, this feels great, right? We got peace with our neighbors. We finally got the son we've been after. This is good. And the first thing God says in Genesis 22, right at the beginning, verse 1, he says, now I'm going to show up. I'm going to test Abraham's faith. I didn't just deliver you from hardship so you could be comfortable right here. We're going to grow. I desire to mature you. Same picture here as Hebrews 6. And same language as last week. God's going to test Abraham just like Jesus was tested. So God calls Abraham to take his son up the mountain and offer him up as a sacrifice. You can imagine that that would have snapped Abraham immediately out of his place of, wow, thank goodness, God, you are so good. You've, you've delivered us from... You want me to do what, God? Like You can, you can hear how, how very quickly Abraham's tune would have changed in how he was being with God. But he's faithful. He rises early in the morning. Verse 3, he takes, Abra or takes Isaac up with him. And we, you're familiar with the story of where he's about to kill him. And then God shows up right here in verse, uh, verse 11 which is what I'll begin reading. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As he said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have surely done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Guys, here's the pattern from chapter 22. Abraham and his family, they're saved, they're delivered from their hardship. God says, I don't just want to save you, I to bring you into a covenant with me. To do that, I need you to really trust me. And he puts Abraham in a place 
where he's got to really trust who he has learned God to be. Because Abraham has gotten to know God a little bit at this point. He's walked with God. God has come and visited with him and talked with him. Like he has a relationship with God. So God wants him to grow. He does this by putting him in a situation where he has to trust. And at the very end, God says, now that you have trusted me, Abraham, here's what I can do. I can complete my work in you. I'm going to bring you the ram instead of your son. Just like we see here in verse 15 of Hebrews 6, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He had a sacrifice instead of his son, and he got to be the one through whom the covenant went. Guys, that is the exact same pattern that is here in Hebrews 6. And it's why it makes sense that the author would pull this example out of his back pocket and share it with his church. He says, look, guys, you have seen this before. You have seen God do a great salvation work in your past. You've seen God use that as a point to say, now that you see what I'm capable of doing, let me make sure not only do you just see it, but you get to experience it. You get to trust me in it. And in that middle of, the, of having to trust God, Abraham is not looking for something else. He's not saying, okay, God, but what if I also bring a lamb with me? Okay, God, but what if I also did this? He's not looking for another foundation. He is choosing to trust God and saying, well, God, you were gonna, you're going to bring your covenant through me. Kind of tough to do that when you take away my only son. But you were the one who provided my son in the first place. So, God, even if you did take him, I trust that you still have something you're doing to work out this covenant in me. Abraham demonstrates this trust, and in doing so, God does provide, God does show up. He brings the salvation, and he brings the covenant together. And I love in verse 18, the author, no, verse 17, the author of Hebrews says, look, God is doing this again. When he desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable nature of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And he talks about how God makes the oath by himself, right? It was a cultural practice. You swear on something, I mean, we still do this today, right? When you swear an oath, you swear on something that's supposed to be bigger than you. So when God swears by himself, he says, there is nothing more trustworthy than me. There is no better foundation. There is no more place where you know the outcome of what I'm doing than being with me. And he says, because Abraham obtained, or because he trusted, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. And then he brings it back around. I mean, listen to the encouragement again in verses 19 and 20. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Because if we're in Abraham's shoes, we're thinking, whew, it feels like I'm having to trust some God. I don't really know whether he's going to do this or not, right? I may lose a son out of this. God says, no, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor 
of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So here's all the Old Testament language that we've been reading the last five weeks. Where Jesus has gone on a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This picture, again, of reconciliation. That what God is after in you and me is drawing us into life with him. But more than doing that by just teaching us new things about him, he calls us to trust what he has shown us. And I was trying to think of a really good illustration for this this week, church. And this, this was by far the hardest one to have to come up with. And I realized late on Friday night, it, it's been this difficult because I feel like this has been something God has had to be kind of pressing on me every single day, that that is what he's after in me. Because we all get into seasons where we're not entirely sure what the next thing looks like or what the next thing we're going to do will be. And we want to know, like, God, just tell me the answer of what to do here so I can move on. And it's taken me a long long time, pretty much the entire time I've been here with you guys, to realize that maybe God just doesn't want to just give me the next thing to do as if I'm just going to have some sort of transactional relationship with him. But maybe he actually wants me to trust what I know of him so that he can show me something more about himself. So one way, just one way that I've seen this is how he has taught me to rest in him. And this goes back a long time. Because if you, you think about the way that we choose to rest, what we do to bring our bodies to relax, right? We're told in scripture, God made us to rest in him. And we also kind of see he's given us a lot of freedom to go enjoy him and his creation as we tend to it, to kind of enter into that rest. Of course, yes, scripture has made it clear there's areas where we can move from enjoying rest into indulging sin. But growing up, I think one of the big ways that I would find relaxation, I would find rest, was in watching tech sports. Uh, if you have followed tech sports, I grew up in the 90s and the 2000s. Um, tech sports in that time was pretty good. That was right around the years where the football program was hitting national recognition. It was easy to relax watching tech play because they were probably going to win, right? Those, those of you, I mean, like th those were the good old days, right, with, with Beamer. So we, we knew that. Right around the time I came to campus, uh, things weren't as good. Watching tech sports suddenly was not relaxing anymore. It, it became like a series of little cardiac arrests of watching, they're going to blow this. Oh, they didn't blow it. To now, they're going to blow this. They're going to, they did blow it. You, like it. It just wasn't relaxing anymore. So my mind was like, okay, this is not relaxing. Let's find something else. And right around the time I got to tech, I discovered campus dining, which for most of you guys who have, you know, if you've had experiences with it, it, it kind of sounds weird because campus dining is not normally a good thing. But tech's campus dining was incredible. Um, if you've not had a meal on campus, it, it's still going to be one of the top 10 meals in the area for how, how good text dining food is. And that was easy to do when you were younger and in college and then later in seminary to kind of keep eating out and eating good food because your metabolism's good. It can keep up with it. And then all of you know at some point your metabolism just says, I'm done with this, 
and you can't eat like that anymore. And you don't get a warning that it's coming. You just discover, oh, I can't eat like this anymore. Right, so then I had to find relaxing somewhere else. Also, it was around the time we started having kids. So even if my body could keep up with it, our, our finances couldn't keep up with it. So then we're starting to figure out, oh, okay, I'm going to have to be more disciplined here. Then I noticed maybe about 18 months ago, I've, I've probably been on my phone a lot more than I like. It's the picture that I'm trying to paint for you guys is the issue is not necessarily in all these things that I'm looking for. It's in the fact that I'm trying to find rest and I'm saying, God, thank you for your foundation of rest, but I'm going to look and explore a little bit over here to see if something else can also provide that rest that I'm looking for. Now, I don't, I don't want to be too naive because I know, as we've seen in God's word, things outside of his design, when we try to find rest in them, they are very harmful to us. Okay, So not everything is as... Seemingly innocent as watching a sports game or being on my phone or eating really good food. But if I had this kind of God's just trying to teach me something new mentality, then my response when I was having to switch from VT sports to eating was that, oh, sports must be bad because it's not providing rest. Food is now good. No, now food is bad because it's not providing for me. Now my phone is what's better. No, now my phone is not. Like We start labeling everything as this is good, this is bad. And, and this knowledge quest becomes what we see our faith maturity like, right? I have to find the good things or the things God's trying to show me. The problem is, is that that doesn't necessarily bring us any closer to God, right? Like if I have not learned, and I'm still in the process of learning what resting in him looks like, I'm just now realizing that the last thing I thought I was doing, which was kind of just keeping track of stuff on my phone, that that's not as helpful. And it's, it's only been very recently that I've started to see maybe the issue wasn't just I was finding the wrong things, but there's something bigger at work, right? That I am not trusting that resting in God is actually worth it. That when I'm stirred up over something and I don't know what to do, all the little different things I could choose to go to, those won't actually do anything. And I could find a different thing to go to that may bring a little bit of relief for a season, but ultimately it can't. Because I'm not trusting the foundation that has already been built. I don't think it's any accident that this is the first thing that Solomon talks about in his journey to find meaning and to find purpose in Ecclesiastes. The very first place he goes in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Solomon sought to gain all knowledge of wisdom, folly, and madness. Essentially, I'm going to find out everything that's good and put it here, and everything that's bad that put it here. And he concludes in verse 18 that all it brought me was more sorrow and grief. It didn't actually bring me closer to God. In fact, as Solomon discovered, those foundations that we look for, if we don't realize that they're not with God, that's how we end up in patterns of addiction or patterns of abuse. Because we're not really getting to fix what's really wrong. We feel like something is missing because it is because we are broken in sin. And if that reconciliation is found in Christ, 
and in life with God, then whatever we can find this side of eternity is not going to ever really fix that. The author of Hebrews knows his audience very well. He says, I know that right now, I mean, he says right here in verse 18, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. He says, audience, you know what you are struggling with? You are fleeing for refuge. You are looking for something, anything to pull you out of the pain and the persecution that you are going through. But what the author presents in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is saying, look, I can tell you all the different ways that Jesus is better. I can show you all the different promises from the Old Testament that point to Jesus being better. But if we will not trust that Jesus is better, it doesn't really matter how much or how well I'm able to tell you any of this. It's not an accident that we're about halfway through Hebrews where the author says, let, before I just keep throwing good things at you, let me, let me make sure we're both tracking on the same page here. We need to be trusting in Christ with this, that God does desire to mature our faith. He does not desire to just leave us in the midst of suffering and in pain and strife. He does not want to leave us there. He does desire to mature us, but he does this through Trust. We can look for a bunch of other things that will help us for seasons, but God has called us to trust what we have in Christ because that is what really will bring us into this covenant life that he desires. So the two questions I have for us to, to leave with this morning from our author is first, what are you missing? You know, for me, I, I, it's, it's been rest. There's been so much change in our lives over the past five years that I'm constantly just, I just need something to rest, right? Something I'm not going to have to think much about. I, I can just chill with this. That's in part driving the bus for me. But we're looking, for me, it's, it's, it's rest. What are we missing? What do you feel is missing from life that we're just trying to search for? What are you missing? The second, where is God in your pursuit? Am I just wanting God to bring me something so I don't have to deal with that anymore, just to teach me something so that I can move on? Or am I content to say, God, I trust that you're going to bring this. I don't feel it in this moment. I'm kind of curious to see what you're going to do here. Because the author of Hebrews says that every moment, in fact, even in Abraham's worst moment, God does show up. He validates everything. That there's nothing as concrete as trusting in God. So with those two questions in mind, guys, we'll have our moment of prayer as we normally do. And I would encourage you just, I mean, we've, we've kind of done it a couple times. I just want to keep making sure you all are aware. There's usually always a couple people that hang out down here at the end of service. We want to pray over you. We want, it's very easy as the pastor, again, to say, trust God, but we want to be able to get to hear and walk with you in what you're going through. So we have, every week, there's a couple different people that we just want to be up there to be in prayer 
for you. So if today you just need some prayer over you and over answering these questions, I would encourage you to come forward. But if not, just take this with you as you go. What are you missing? What do you feel like is missing? And where is God in your pursuit? Let's pray. Almighty God, I am loved with everlasting love. I'm clothed in eternal righteousness, my peace flowing like a river, my comforts many and large, my joy and triumph unutterable, my soul lively with a knowledge of salvation, my sense of justification unclouded. Sometimes, Lord, I have scarce anything to pray for. <clears throat> for Jesus smiles upon my soul as a ray of heaven, and my supplications are swallowed up in praise. How sweet is the glorious doctrine when based upon thy word and wrought inwardly with the soul. I bless thee that thou wilt keep the sinner thou hast loved and hast engaged that he will not forsake thee, else I would never get to heaven. I wrong the work of grace in my heart if I deny my new nature and my eternal life. If Jesus were not my righteousness and my redemption, I would sink into nethermost hell by my misdoings, my shortcomings, my unbelief, my unlove. If Jesus were not by the power of his spirit, my sanctification, there is no sin I should not commit. Lord, when shall I have his mind? When shall I be conformed to his image? All the good things of life are less than nothing when compared with his love and with one glimpse of thy electing favor. All the treasures of a million worlds could not make me richer, happier, more contented, for his unsearchable riches are already mine. One moment of communion with him, one view of his grace is ineffable, inestimable. But, O oh God, I could not long after thy presence if I did not know the Spirit in my heart. Nor could I love thee at all unless thou had already elected me and called me, adopted me, and saved me. I bless thee for the covenant of grace. Amen.